everyone, welcome to the product experience. Randy is on holiday this week, so we are going to fly back to one of our very first episodes with Tim Herbig from Hamburg, who taught us all about how to manage upways, sideways, and downways. The product experience is brought to you by Mind the Product. Every week on the podcast, we talk to the best product people from around the globe. Visit mindtheproduct.com to catch up on past episodes and discover more. Browse for free or become a Mind the Product member to unlock premium content, discounts to our conferences around the world, and training opportunities. Mind the Product also offers free product tank meetups in more than 200 cities, and there's probably one near you. So hi, everyone. Uh, first of all, thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Tim Herbig. I'm from Germany, so my name is typically pronounced a bit different, but I'm making it more easy for all the English speakers out there. Herbig, it's fine. I'm, yeah, essentially someone who loves to build products. Uh, so I started um, doing product management in some sort of way, at least back in 2010, the smaller performance marketing agency uh, in Hamburg in Germany. Then I evolved through multiple product roles, either in big publishing companies uh, super small startups. For example, we tried to disrupt the dog sitting market with a small app, which apparently failed. Um, but I also held product roles, for example, at Zing. And for those of you who are not familiar with it, it's pretty much like the German LinkedIn, so to say, where I was responsible for the, uh, the premium membership, the largest B2C revenue source as a product manager. Then I went on to pursue some smaller startup roles again. And now my day is pretty much two-sided. On the one hand, I lead the overall um, development and all the other efforts of Iridion, which is an A-B testing platform as the sort of director of product. And on the other uh, hand, I do things like writing books, which I wouldn't recommend to everyone. Uh, <laughs> I uh, talk a lot about product management at various conferences, write about it, uh, workshops, keynotes, that sort of thing. So um, that's the super Tim in a nutshell version, I would say. Because you teased us, and and I'm going to bug you about the pronunciation of a different German word later. But how would you normally pronounce your name? Herbig. Ah. But the thing is, even I have a even I have a I have a dispute even with Germans because most Germans say Herbig, and like I try to insist on Herbig, so it's super complicated how you pronounce the D. <laughs> um, yeah. End of story. Okay, more relevant. Uh, so you just published a book about lateral leadership. So what is lateral leadership and what made you write this book? Yeah, so um, lateral leadership essentially describes the situation many product people find themselves in, in which you have to influence other people, whether it's your team members or your stakeholders, without having any sort of formal authority over them. So typically you're not entitled by your salary, your hierarchy, hierarchical level or your job title to demand um, certain things from people. Um, the problem is that most managers on the other side have established their traditional way of thinking of hierarchical tools to get what they want. But as a product manager, you, you can't rely on denying vacation days or screaming at people to get what you want. So you have to be a bit more um, creative with getting buy-in from people to a shared vision, I would say. So this is essentially um, lateral leadership. And um, how I arrived at talking and writing more about this topic is essentially that um, probably every product manager can relate to the concept. But for most of us, at least from my experience, it's hard to put it into exact words, what it is, what is the situation, what's the challenge we're having. 
And so when I first heard of the term Lado leadership and uh, understood what it is about back in 2014, I was like super relieved because like, wow, great, there's a name for my problem. Finally, I can give it a name. And so over the years, I um, naturally, I, w I was in the situation of having to lead people without formal authority. And um, then as time went on um, and I progressed through various challenges of that in my own product management roles, um, I did a brief stint in a consulting company where I had the opportunity to observe many, many companies being in this sort of transition towards more agile processes, agile team setups. And I recognized this gap of like not only adopting agile processes like sprint planning or estimating using story points, stuff like that, but also thinking about what this adoption of agile processes like means for the people working on these agile teams, meaning how do they lead each other and what which changes are required to succeed with that. And um, so... Then when essentially uh, one and a half years ago already, um, Jeff Gotthelf and Josh Seiden opened their new publishing platform, Sense and Respond book, I like felt like this was the sign I have been waiting for to go a bit deeper in this topic, um, primarily because I also felt from many conversations I had with product people that um, very few of them are actually aware that they have a leadership responsibility because like it's not in their official profile. Yet the implicit expectation from the environments and the stakeholders is that they step into mm. this leadership responsibility, but they have by no means any education about which tools or skills are needed for that. Was there a time where you just absolutely failed in this and it had a bad, uh, bad effect on your job? Yeah. Um, I would, uh, I mean, I would, I would say, I would say at least 50% of all the jobs I had because the problem with lateral leadership or the main challenge is that it's so unique depending on the environment you're operating in, right? So it's like, yes, you can apply or you can be aware of a certain set of like, I don't want to say standard, but like default tools, which probably help you dealing with the challenge, but they always have to be adapted to the environment you're operating in. So for example, my first like real scenario where I was challenged by that was when I worked at a, the publishing company, uh, one of the biggest ones in Germany and the editorial room, editorial staff was basically my, my main stakeholder. And it took me quite a while to figure out like, okay, what does it like? What do I, how can I demonstrate empathy to them so we can relate to each other and have a better understanding about the challenges of my job and their job and thereby establish just an overall better relationship with each other compared to you. You have to think about completely different things when you try to establish empathy with like developers or engineers or even marketeers in a more product driven company. So uh, I would say it took me at least 50% of the time of all of my jobs to figure it out again and again, how I could apply the essentials of successfully, hopefully successfully leading people without authority. And I think there's a balance, isn't there, between kind of micromanaging people and then uh, giving people so much space that they're, they feel a bit abandoned. Is there, is there a way that you kind of strive to, um, or, or aim to, to reach that balance? Yeah. Um, so I think maybe you just briefly picking up what you just said. I think that's perfectly describes it because the problem is that as a product manager, you're typically a generalist, which who has to operate or has to work with domain experts and a natural reaction for every person probably um, when you are faced with something you just don't understand, meaning you can't like practically um, do that, do that thing like writing, coding, designing, you react with um, more control. You want to go deeper into it to have a better understanding. You, it's, a, it's hard for us to accept this uncertainty and 
just stay on the sideline. So, and this is what would typically lead to the micromanagement aspect, meaning, okay, in order to ensure that developers are really producing great tickets, my descriptions have to be more granular. Uh, needless to say that this will cause lots of pushback from your team. And on the other hand, of course, you still want to show that you, um, that you genuinely care about their work, that you are involved, that you are present, um, but just from the right distance. So, um, I think we were going to talk about, especially as Randy teased the other German term already, we will talk about more about the whole aspect of aligning on the, on the actual what needs to be done within a team. But one of the most important aspects for me has been in the past uh, when it comes to establishing empathy with the people you're working with and simply developing a more shared understanding for the challenges of one another beyond a typical project or specific scenario. It's just like try to get yourself involved in like the communities of practice you're working with. And it could be as easy as attending a local meetup for iOS developers or engineers. Or maybe you have even internal meetup at your company where you could just sit silently in the corner and observe the discussions which are going on in within this community of practice. And, um, this, the, it's not the, the goal is not that you become a better developer or designer yourself. Um, the goal is simply to enable yourself to ask better questions and have a better understanding of the context of people, of the people you're working with. And on the other hand, by showing that you care, gaining a bit more yeah, credibility when working with them. I think that's really interesting. And, um, certainly with some of the developers that I've worked with, um, you will have some who want to kind of understand the problem and, uh, you know, say, well, that they'll say to me, you know, tell me, tell me what the problem is and then I can help come up with the, the solution or the task or, or whatever. Um, and then you'll have others who obviously have been used to kind of being fed much or micromanaged much more tightly. Um, and they, and I prefer to work in a, I guess, more in a sort of, uh, uh, slightly more distanced kind of way. I don't like to micromanage people. I like them to feel empowered. So there is that kind of element of coaching that you need to do and um, and helping them work through. You know, I'm not going to tell you every single thing that needs to be done. Um, you have to you have to bring your own self to it yeah. as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, the the challenge is that oftentimes, for example, when you take over a new team, for example, you are maybe it's not clear like in which environment the team you're now working with has been operating in in the past. So maybe they have been educated to only do what they have been told in a very distinguished and granular manner, right? And so you might receive some pushback when you start opening up the space they can operate in because they say, no, we don't want to step into the space because additional space means more responsibility. We're not ready for that. We haven't like been educated to behave like that. We want the more granular descriptions. And so it will take some time uh, until they will accept this additional space of freedom to create. Yeah. And it's, it's really healthy if you can get to that, that point, I think. Before we jump into some of the techniques you can use, is there something you can, uh, a way that you can diagnose whether you're, you're being effective as a lateral leader? Is there, are there typical warning signs or signs of success? I think one uh, one warning sign would definitely, what I just d described in the beginning, that if people sort of resonate uh, and just ask for more granular specs to simply get their job done. So I think this certainly would show that you have established some sort of very unhealthy hierarchy within your team. 
which goes way beyond just the shared responsibilities of just like, because people would then say, okay, we're, we're always doing what Tim says anyways. So why should we bother discussing additional topics? So like if you observe, observe this resignation, I think it's a sign that you have, that you behaved a bit too dominant and rather applied more hierarchical tools and trying to establish your own position. Uh, I think this would be one thing. And on the other hand, I think another, um, another warning sign could be that you never, or maybe, I don't know if it's a warning sign, but it's like that you never are in the situation of discussing like personal matters with your people. Like does, do your team members, your peers feel safe about opening up what really makes them struggle on an everyday basis as well at work in your environment you have created. And I think as I think that, because I think that empathy is such an important aspect uh, and the opening up about what really worries you at the moment or makes you, makes you succeed or drive uh, is important, an important aspect you should create. So one of the things you cover in your book is how to set a mission or goal for the team um, to make, uh, to, to give everyone a, a, a target to aim towards. What tools do you use and um, yeah, what tools do you use? Yeah. I mean, there's certainly no shortage out there when it comes to like tools for creating a shared understanding within your team and creating alignment. Um, but one of the tools which has worked for me pretty well over the last years is called the mission briefing. That's not my terminology. It's after a strategy consultant called Stephen Bungai who wrote a whole book on the, this topic, like not specifically in the terms of product, but more like in general. And so uh, he has come up with this uh, super dense uh, and short concept of the mission briefing. And uh, maybe just must want to maybe just one or two words on why I think such a such a framework is important. Um, the problem is, as we discussed earlier, like the situation you're in, like you're the generalist working with the domain experts. The problem is that even though you think you all have the same understanding about what needs to be done, everybody's using their own jargon, has their own understanding. Like everybody's caught inside their own bubble. And so the biggest challenge for creating a shared understanding about the mission ahead or the, the what needs to be done is to develop a shared language, right? And speak in the same language and articulate the path forward together and craft it together and not just see it as a, as a top-down document. And so I'm talking about more about this, this mission briefing and the, um, the goal of the mission, the goal of the mission briefing is essentially as I said, to, to have this, create this shared understanding about the mission ahead, meaning the what. And one of the underlying beliefs is that ultimately product teams thrive uh, thrive for um, autonomy, right? They want autonomy from their bosses on the one hand to like act on their own and succeed at a mission, hopefully. Yet at the same time, this, um, this idea of autonomy is, holds also true for people within the team, right? So developers, designers, whoever's part of a cross-functional team also wants pretty much autonomy from the other roles to simply succeed at what they are specifically hired to do, right? So you don't want, you want this autonomy. And uh, the degree of autonomy you can get, whether it's within your org or your, your team, highly depends on the clarity you have been able to create up front. And so um, the mission briefing is like a five chapter, five area sort of sort of document, which ideally fits on a, on a standard sheet of paper and uh, basically walks you through through five parts. And um, the, the parts consist of... Uh, on the one hand, it starts off with like, describe the context. Like, what's the situation within the company? What's the situation uh, out there uh, for the markets? And what's the problem with that? Like, what's the trigger? Why should, why should we act on that? Um, then you also have to make sure that this 
this initiative, this project you're pursuing somehow fits into the overall strategy of your company. So like, what's the higher intent of the company for this year, maybe? Like, how does this fit in? Um, then you're going to talk about, okay, what is actually our intent as a team? Like, what do we want to achieve? And it's like, they're, of course, important to focus on changing user or business behavior, not listing specific features or products. Um, but you should also like somehow be able to articulate, like, when are we successful? Like, what kind of measures of success are we pursuing um, for this project? Um, and then it's about listing basically something like the, the key implied tasks, which are not really tasks or the wording might be a bit misleading. It's more about pointing out which which blind spots do you do you have ahead of you and which one should you take it first? Like what are your most critical hypotheses you should pursue? And last but not least, and this is probably one of the most important ones when it comes to using this tool to provide actual guidance, um, is the is the notion of boundaries. Like and no boundaries are two sided. On the one hand, it's about saying what is not allowed to happen as a side effect from this project, like which metric is not allowed to go down or up. And on the other hand, also explicitly listing what you're not going to do, like which for which platform are you not going to build a product, uh, which user group won't you serve with this product, stuff like that. So the combination of these five areas then completes this mission briefing format. Thank you. That's a, that's a really good overview of it. I was when I when I looked through the book, I was uh, in my mind comparing it to what Teresa Torres does with the opportunity tree, and it's a different. Yep idea it's a slightly different purpose and just for anyone who who doesn't know the opportunity tree there's there's really great videos that teresa has done on this and it's worth searching out but it's a, a similar type of structure in that you've got uh, a company corporate vision uh, or product vision you've got longer term goals you've got shorter term goals quarterly or okrs or something like that that are generally come top down in terms of strategy and then mm -hmm. you've got things bottom up of your backlog and the epics or f features that they align to uh and it's a really great tool for illustrating alignment for work in progress and strategy and where you're going to would you, you see these as complementary or would you use them together I think I would see them complementary because at least this is how my understandings of the, of the opportunity tree is that it helps you also to structure your ongoing efforts, for example, during a discovery phase or stuff like that. Um, compared to the mission briefing is really about like framing the beginning and then letting you pursue the mission. Um, so I think this is maybe if you compare it directly, one of the, one of the, benefits or the advantages of the opportunity solution tree, that it also helps you to structure the ongoing efforts. Mm. Right? That's how I would see it. So you might create a mission briefing at the at the that tactical level or even at the strategic level to define yeah. the, that makes sense. Yeah. Are you ready? for Mind the Product San Francisco conference happening in June. If you've been before, you're probably feeling a bit like me, desperate for your MTP con fix. And if you're new to it, this is the product conference not to miss. If you're a product person looking to advance your career, expand your network, get inspired and bring the best products to market, then this is for you. So what can you expect? Well, MTP con is known for their epic lineup of speakers, renowned product leaders with invaluable insights and tactics to share. They cover a range of exciting topics that will challenge and inspire you to step up as a product manager, always with something tangible to take away into your own product practice. And don't let location hold you back. Even if you can't join in person in San Francisco, 
you can still be part of the action with their convenient digital-only option. This event is a must-attend for anyone seeking to elevate their product management game. Find out more and book your ticket at mindtheproduct.com slash Sam dash Francisco. So who would who would put this together? Would this be the product manager with the kind of product team or do you have to work with sort of broader stakeholders? Um, so I think it, of course, the uh, favorite answer of every product manager is it depends. Um, but ideally, the let's say the final document you would commit on as a team to uh, frame the mission ahead should be in some sort of like should be crafted together as a team. Because involving, as I said in the beginning, like involving these different perspectives you have on the team is only possible through collaborating on it. So it might be the case or it might be helpful that or this is like, for example, a scenario how I use it. It's like when I have a new idea or like in the very early stages of an upcoming discovery, I use this format to structure basically my own thoughts. Like it helps me bring, bring clarity to my own writing, to my own thoughts. And I write it down. And then I typically, we do another iteration within the team where I might even like hold back some of my input to not like giving them any sort of bias towards the, the additions I made to the mission briefing. Um, and if you have crafted a first version, you should also run it by your boss and your boss's boss to, to get the alignment of like, Hey, look, does this really fit in into the overall company strategy? Like, are we, do we have buy-in for pursuing this path and stuff like that? Um, but ultimately it should be something the whole team, um, buys into. And, and what happens when you don't get buy-in or when you get um, when you get a misalignment? Yeah. Um, I mean, ideally, so if you have true misalignment, I would say uh, you, you should rethink if you should start the project. But I think one of the biggest um, confusions I see when it comes to creating alignment is that people confuse alignment with agreement. And there's this uh, this great quote from from Jeff Bezos in this great tale where he tells like um, alignment is not about agreement. It's it's also fair to disagree and commit. So creating alignment is not about making everyone happy and like everybody saying, yeah, this is the best idea ever, but more like, look, this is like something for the next three to six months maximum. And there are lots of uncertainty in there. So um, it's more important to get started to figure out whether the stuff we have put down here is actually true and we can adjust it all the time. So it's not a static document. It should be something which update, which is updated all the time. And I think with this attitude in mind, it's also fine or it's much more easy to get potentially hesitant um, or reluctant team members on board of like, let's pursue this, let's give this a try and let's adjust along the way. So I think uh, where most people feel like alignment is impossible, especially in larger corporations, is because they aim for true agreement to an idea, which is close to impossible, especially in a complex stakeholder environment. This is uh, where you're talking about alignment across larger teams or with uh, uh, up and down the chain with stakeholders. Um, Zing has a really good methodology for how they create alignment or at least communication and collaboration. And I have I reference it all the time. I have no idea how to how pronounce, do you pronounce the word. it. <laughs> Please help me. Uh, so the, the, the document you're referring to is, uh, is called Auftragsklärung. So this is the super German word. Um, it's really, it's, it's hardcore German. <laughs> um, there were many attempts inside of Zing when this was created, which is, was, of course, which was heavily influenced by the, so like it's an, it's an, it's a custom evolution of the emission briefing framework. It's based on Bungay's idea. 
Um, there were many attempts to give it a more like internationally appropriate name. I think the closest one we got was like, it was called ACE, which was assignment clarification exercise, which sounds even German in, in English. <laughs> so it's like, okay. And I think at one point in time we just resonated or the, the main people behind the initiative resonated and said like, okay, let's roll with Auftragsklärung thereby, like through that, at least everyone knows that it's German. Okay. Auftragsklärung. Yeah, sort of. Almost. Let me send it to you as a voice memo, and then you can play it off your phone every time you want. Oh, to I will it. definitely do that, and we'll put a <laughs> link to the to the site that's got a yeah. really great overview yeah. of it. That's a good idea. Notes. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so uh, going back to disagree and commit for a moment, have you ever seen uh, this being introduced to an organization? Because uh, I've been in plenty of big companies where uh, the we have agreement theater, but the idea of people actually saying yes, admitting we're not going to agree, but we are going to commit, I, I can't see them doing it in many cases. I think um, you have a much higher chance of achieving that when you're working in an organization which has embraced the idea of self-organization much more wholeheartedly. Because from my experience, the biggest amount of actual disagreement about a mission does not necessarily come from within the team, but more like from senior management disagreeing with the direction the team wants to pursue. So I think if a company has like really said, look, we're really doubling down on this idea of cross-functional teams autonomously pursuing a mission. I think in these environments, you um, have much there, you will experience it much more often that management might say, look, I'm not agreeing, but you're the team you're having the, um, you're having the autonomy to pursue your mission uh, give it a try. Moving on to the kind of, we talked about empathy, but also um, there's an element of trust uh, that I think lots of people who work with teams are aware that trust is just so important um, to to be an effective leader. Uh, what You've talked about a few kind of examples of how you build trust, but it, have you got any sort of specific um, tasks or things that you do uh, you know yourself to to make yeah. that happen so um when i thought about this whole topic of how can you make empathy within the team more tangible because i think this is one of the biggest struggles like everybody's talking about it but how to make empathy more tangible within the team um i mean there's there are the obvious things of like simply like doing sort of like informal one-on-one -on -one with team members and asking them like how they do how they're doing and care about them just beyond the pure um, burned on chart of your last sprint, right? So like sort of step into this, like an area which you would normally consider the area to be of a, of a, of a people manager. Um, but there, I think it's important to also support this general culture of empathy within the entire team. And um, I think because we talk so much about having empathy for our users, but we rarely talk about having empathy for the people we work with. And um, so one one framework I, I came up with or format I came up with was, uh, it's called the, the Agile Peer Canvas, which is, which is essentially meant to be like a guide for teams having a more open and honest discussion and which goes beyond their job description. So um, essentially it combines various aspects of like, what's your formal responsibility as a person, but also what are the, the hopes and fears you have as a person, not just as this role you're having on this team. Like what makes you 
what what drives you, what motivates you, and what might be informal roles you could take as part of this team, which help you to fulfill your inner purpose, which is maybe not reflected in your job description. So maybe you care a lot about the way you communicate within the team or ethical standards, professional pride, stuff like that. These things are oftentimes not reflected in job descriptions. And I think it's uh, an important part of empathy is to help people find the space to step into to pursue this passion and this and this purpose and so this uh, this agile peer canvas essentially could be a guide for for a discussion you have as a team as a, as a as a workshop a joint workshop where one after another simply opens up using this framework and tells everybody look this is me this is me as a person this is who i am and it's not only meant to be a one-way street but instead also offers the chance to have a an honest conversation about who everybody on this team thinks this person is like what do i think of you what how do i perceive you like what are you driven by what are your motivators um what do why am i surprised that you have a fear of whatever imposter syndrome to take the product management example um <laughs> i think these conversations happen way too way too too rarely is that a thing not often enough let's say it this way they don't have often enough and I think just making it a bit more guided guided and a bit more structured uh, can help product teams achieve a way better culture. Do you find that some people find that very uncomfortable? Absolutely. Um, yeah. And yeah. I think that one important thing to get things going is that, so typically it's the product manager or maybe a scrum master who gets things like that going. And it's important to understand that you have to be the one opening up first. So when sending this meeting invite, you probably have to send your, your, like some of the things you're going to open up on, uh, right away. It reminds me, it's nothing like it, but it reminds me of, um, uh, an article I read a while ago about, um, Google Ventures. I think it was, uh, used to run or probably still do <coughs> run anxiety oh, parties. It's great. I absolutely love the idea. Um, I think I've only managed to do it once. I've only had kind of like one scenario where it's been appropriate. Um, and essentially what the, the team will do is they'll come with their anxieties and say, this is what I think I'm doing wrong. Um, and then the rest of the team will kind of rate them on whether it's an actual thing wow. or not, whether it's like it's something they need to That's worry great. about or not, which I think, is, yeah, it's a really, it's a really nice way of, um, of kind of turning it around so that the things that you're worried about, you can either get feedback on or you can be told you don't need to worry about that because it's not what we think at all. It sounds so California though. <laughs> how, how do you deal with stuff like that in, in the UK? Huh, Randy? <laughs> we just have a cup of tea. Of course. <laughs> I'm going to defer to the actual British person on that. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sorry, Tim, uh, that was a really great practical overview and description of the, the peer canvas, but is there a way that people can get their hands on it to, if they want to try it out? Yeah, sure. I think we might, might be able to link it in the show notes as well. But if you just go to the, uh, now using my German last name, herbig.blog slash canvas should give you, uh, should get you right away to it, uh, right to it. Uh, you can download for free and I've, I provide some instructions of how to use it as well. And if any questions, feel free to reach out to me. So one of the big things that you have to deal with um, in leadership and, and in managing teams or working with teams is conflict sort of management. Um, what's your what's your kind of take on conflict and, and how to deal with uh, conflict in a in a lateral leadership manner? Yeah. 
I think the biggest problem with, with conflict and associated um, the, the process of escalating things, if you're not able to resolve it on eye level, is that it's seen as a, as a bad thing, right? So people shy away from escalating things or clarifying conflicts because um, doing that might lead to the perception of that they have not been able to master it themselves. They look for help from others and this is a weakness. So they are not, they're a weak leader, not a strong leader. I think this is uh, simply... A way of thinking which has to stop because ultimately everyone on the team seeks progress and clarity and sometimes it's it's natural or it's important to admit that you can't resolve every conflict in every situation every disagreement purely on eye level between two persons because probably you're you're just running circles running around in circles because you you couldn't get to the to the solution and therefore, it's important to seek this support or this help in making the final decision or making a call by escalating things. And I don't know if it is a, how it is abroad, but especially in Germany, uh, on the German culture, I would say that escalating things like has this negative touch, like this negative perception of that it's not something you should do. And I'm a big fan of like actually supporting escalation and giving people more guidance and more um, encouraging them to escalate, to clarify conflicts. By just making sure that there's a certain shared understanding about that this is not a bad thing and just walking through a certain step of things like how you would like to see things escalated in your company in order to make a structured decision making. And I think this is what it's ultimately about. And if you're able to establish this shared understanding or this culture of escalating properly for conflict resolution in your company, uh, you are able to make much more progress, uh, even in lateral or especially in lateral environments. So that's interesting. You're talking about escalation, but not making it confrontational. Is that is that an accurate? Uh, I think it depends on how you would define confrontation. I think it's like, um, so, uh, so my head, when this is like, so, so German I am, confrontation sounds like screaming mm -hmm. at each other and fighting. And I think it's, um, it's unfortunately, it's oftentimes used like that. Like people use escalation as a threat. It's like I once was part of a project where someone stormed into the room and was in disagreement with the project we're working on was like, um, this is not how things are going, are happening here. I'm going to escalate that. And it was clearly meant as a threat to stop doing things compared to the reaction one should have embraced on the other side would be like, or should be like, great. Finally, we're doing this. May I help you write the email to escalate things? Because then we can finally make progress. So I think that people are oftentimes, especially on eye level, are, might not be able to make a call to finally resolve a conflict because it depends on things above their pay grade or whatever, or political dependencies. Um, and therefore, it's even more important to embrace, for example, the clarification of this process, of this conflict. It's interesting. And actually, what I find as well is that you can get an element of kind of lateral escalation where... Certainly, I've been in a situation where someone's manager has come to me and said, I'm having this problem with this staff member. Please, can you find a way to um, encourage them to behave slightly differently or to think, you know, to, to think about the rest of the team when they're behaving in this way? Um, so I think I think escalation can kind of work in different ways. Yeah, absolutely. So I think it, it can also go like, it's a, it's a it's a misperception that escalation only has to go up the chain like it's it's a hierarchical escalation i think if you think back of this concept of especially the informal roles on a team i think it's uh, there certainly are people in every team who are pretty good mediators and can help you resolve a conflict um and all that's needed here is just the shared understanding of like sort of a, sort of a process of how you lay out the conflict to enable decision making 
So do you have um, do you have your favourite lateral leader? Do you have like your one person or your your few handful of people that you've seen do this really well? I still admire because it's important to understand that lateral leadership does not only happen on an individual contributor level a level because also like C level board members or VPs have to lead laterally, meaning they have to lead other VPs or other C level board members laterally, because as soon as you're on the same like hierarchical level, you have to apply these tools. And so to this day, I still have uh, uh, lots of admiration for my former boss's boss at Zing, who uh, was a VP and uh, who's still, uh, I'm admiring, still admiring him for the empathetical way, empathetic way. I don't know if that's a thing. Uh, the way he deployed empathy to work with people on the same level as he was and never relied on like traditional who's the strongest guy in the room, at least not in my, not to my awareness. So uh, this was really impressive to me and also showed me that this way of leading is also needed and possible on, yeah, higher hierarchical levels. So one of the things I love about your book, Tim, is that it's short. And that's not uh, – I, I know it sounds ridiculous, but there are a lot of – It was – it was the, the suffering was <laughs> no, over. No, there's a mm -hmm. lot of management books that uh, have a really great message in 30 to 50 pages, and then they repeat it and illustrate it again and, and again and again. And it's you're, – you're flipping through trying to find the meat in it, and your book doesn't have a lot of filler to it. Uh, but you do have an awfully long reading list at the end. So – uh, you know, so that we don't, uh, so we get all the a lot of the benefit by reading your book. But which are the two or three top things you would recommend for people more interested in this topic? So the the top three books I would certainly recommend from this whole list is um, on the one hand it's uh, Radical Candor from Kim Scott, which is a gr an amazing book on giving feedback, uh, which is even more important on on eye level. Um, then it's uh, the hard thing about hard things um, from Ben Horowitz, uh, which doesn't seem that related at first sight, but if you dive into it, this whole notion of the intensity of he, him caring about the people on his company, uh, was certainly impressive for me in writing this book. And last but not least, it's, uh, reinventing organizations from Frederick Laloux, um, and this, the illustrated version. And this is an important, <laughs> um, it's an, it's an important remark because there's an illustrated and non-illustrated version and the illustrated one is just so much more fun. And in this book, he describes really like a very, I would say, desirable future of how organizations should be set up and work together. And th that was one of the things I was going to ask, actually, is, you know, we're talking in terms of tech businesses. Do you have any experience of um, of this kind of lateral leadership kind of becoming more prominent across other industries or other businesses? Because uh, obviously, in tech, we're we're seeing more sort of holocratic organizations and, mm. and different types of organizations. But do you have you seen any examples of other businesses embracing this kind of non-hierarchical way of working? So, um, not in person, I have to say, uh, just from like from the from the tales, all the stories Lalu is sharing in this book. But just in general, I'm just so convinced that this notion of Organizing the work in a company in cross-functional, loosely connected teams is already present uh, in companies which are not in the tech sector. Um, so I think on the same note, um, like I see the awareness for lateral leadership being strongly 
correlate, uh, correlating strongly to the degree of maturity of this company when it comes to embracing agile processes and setting up cross-functional independent teams. And so as soon as you have adopted a certain degree of like maturity when it comes to agile work, whatever that means, um, you arrive at this point of like questioning, okay, what does it mean for the way we lead each other? And so I'm strongly, I strongly believe that this will spread. This is already present in companies beyond the tech sector and will spread. Tim, as, you, as you've embraced this, what's the difference you've noticed in your day-to-day -day work? What's changed uh, since you've been aware and started applying this? Mm, I would definitely say um, opening up more myself is one thing, just regularly, just opening up a bit more about like what worries me, what's on my mind with the people I work with on a regular basis. Encouraging them to do the same thing are certainly uh, one of the main aspects, I would say. And also, and this goes a bit then hand in hand with the alignment thing, is trying to pay way more attention of the jargon or the vocabulary which is used within the team to make sure that the shared understanding is actually shared understanding. And what effect has it had on your teams? That's a good one. I think it would be easier to ask them. Um, I would hope that it's made me more approachable and increase their psychological safety to pursue their own ideas and also make their own mistakes. Hopefully, at least this is what I what what I'm what I'm aiming for um, by applying this sort of behavior. But I think this could hold true and taking up responsibility on their own without my permission. That's a good one. That feels like a really nice, um, nice place to, to end the interview. <laughs> Thank you, Tim. That was brilliant. Yeah, that was really good. It's almost like you've talked about this before. <laughs> <laughs> I practiced, you know, I, I ran some dry interviews the day before. <laughs> Thanks so much. This was really fun, guys. The product experience is the first and the best podcast from Mind the Product. Our hosts are me, Lily Smith, and me, Randy Silver. Lou Ron Pratt is our producer, and Luke Smith is our editor. Our theme music is from Hamburg based band POW, that's P A U. Thanks to Arnie Kittler, who curates both Product Tank and MTP Engage in Hamburg, and who also plays bass in the band for letting us use their music. You can connect with your local product community via Product Tank, regular free meetups in over 200 cities worldwide. If there's not one near you, maybe you should think about starting one. To find out more, go to mindtheproduct.com forward slash product tank. <laughs>